All right. This is it. This is the uh, Women in Ministry series part five. Uh, welcome back to me and you <laughs> to this series. It's been like a few weeks since we've done one, and we're going to be trying to kick them out as quick as I'm able to, depending on my schedule and my other commitments and all this other stuff. I just want to produce stuff that's going to be thoughtful and thorough because in this video, we're focusing on the idea that uh, women were apostles. And basically, the view is, hey, if women were apostles, why couldn't they also be elders in the highest roles of leadership in the church? <clears throat> um, the issue, though, the, the, the reason why I want to why I'm doing this massive series, I'll remind you, is a few things, things that I believe about this, right? One, um, the issue of women in ministry has become a massive and vitriolic debate within the body of Christ and in the world about the body of Christ. Uh, there's people on both sides, but I I hesitate and I encourage you to hesitate as well to just, you know, gut reaction to seeing the, the irritation and the divisiveness that people have on the topic. I, I, I just want to say don't let your gut reaction be to simply get on the fence on every issue people are upset about. This is going to make you a weak Christian, unable to stand up and hold to biblical values in the midst of a shifting culture. Um, so it's not enough to get on the fence. So here, here's the basic idea we're doing today, right? The egalitarians have two views. That's the people who think there's no restrictions on leadership roles as far as what rank of leadership role uh, there, there are for women. The egalitarians have two views on this. They say there were women who were apostles and apostles have the highest teaching and authority roles in the church. So if women were that highest role, they can't be forbidden teaching and authority in other ways. And so it's going to force you, and this is this is how it affects egalitarians. I've seen egalitarians move through this process. They, they go, wow, you know, if there were women apostles, then that's another reason for me to rethink my view of 1 Timothy 2, 1 Corinthians 11, and these other passages that I, at first blush, seem to teach clearly that there are role differences for men and women. Um, simultaneously, they'll say that the reason Jesus didn't have women apostles was cultural. And some say he did have women apostles. And so it's a little confusing. <laughs> we'll get into all this stuff. The complementarian view is either that there were no women apostles, that's a more minority position, or that there were women apostles, but not that kind of apostle, right? The complementarians are like, hey, yeah, there were women apostles, but they weren't like the highest teaching authority role. They were missionaries, church planters, but not the regular teaching and authority office of elder. It was transitionary. It was not permanent. And then they'll add explicit teaching from the New Testament says that only men can be elders and therefore, you know, that, that settles it. Um, so we're going to dig right into it. Um, in, and this will be a shorter video today than usual for this series anyways, shorter for this particular really long, exhaustive series. Um, <clears throat> in what ways do uh, people say that women were apostles? Uh, how does the argumentation go? And I'm going to give you just a quick summary and then we'll walk through these points in detail in today's video. So they usually seem to mean apostle when they say this in the sense that they are the highest place of leadership, right? Otherwise, it doesn't really matter because if apostle means something totally different than that, then it no longer bears into women in leadership. It, it's it's different. Um, so the two things they'll say is, one, uh, Mary was an apostle to the apostles, or that Mary and other women, this is those who were the first witnesses to uh, run and tell the disciples that the tomb was empty, that they were apostles to the apostles. I'll, I'll share with you a quote from N.T. Wright and others who say this type of thing as well. Um, then <clears throat> the second way they do this is with Junia. In Romans chapter 16, Junia is specifically called an apostle. Like the, the, the text says 
according to many, according to the, the a consensus of scholars, like this on both sides, complementary and egalitarian, a consensus that says she was an apostle, Junia, in Romans chapter 16. So we'll get into those things. And just a reminder, I got to say it again, because this will come up later, because some egalitarians, they start, they shift the meaning of apostle halfway through their discussion of these issues. And I think it causes problems. But it only matters if women were apostles, if by that we mean having like a high authority and teaching role over men in the church. Okay, then it matters. And I agree it matters, right? I think we should all agree <clears throat> on that. So here's the positive data. Let's start with the egalitarian case. We'll start with Romans chapter 16, verse 7. This is the idea, this is the passage here where Junia is called apostle. So um, <clears throat> let me read it to you guys in... Um, well, here's the ESV. It says, Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were great. They were in Christ before me. Um, that phrase, well known to the apostles, the ESV here is, is a minority translation. More often, translations will handle it differently. And so um, the NASB gives, makes it a little more clear that they're trying to imply that she was an apostle who are outstanding among the apostles. Andronicus and Junia, Junia or Junius, probably a married couple, most likely. And one of them, apparently they're apostles and they're well-known among the apostles. Uh, you could look at another translation. Uh, let me make this bigger for you. Here's the NIV that says um, they are outstanding among the apostles. So there's actually a debate on this. But again, the consensus is, the consensus view is that they're well-known apostles, not just well-known to the apostles. That That's what the consensus generally holds. And we're going to walk through this. Um, so against the view that there, and, and you guys, this we're going to get into Greek here. Okay. This is just how it is. I'm sorry <laughs> for those that are like, oh, I don't want to get into the Greek. We're going to get into it. I'll try to make it as simple as I can. And I'll reference some resources. I will link down below. It occurs to me now I haven't put them in, in the description yet, but I will. I will put them in the description for you. Several papers you can check out on this uh, well, two papers in a book that you can check out on this topic. But <clears throat> there are those who say, hey, she was well-known to the apostles. And um, the that that is, that is a super minority group. The consensus, which usually that word, when we say consensus of scholars, we don't mean majority. Majority means over 50%. Consensus usually means over like 90%. So the consensus of scholarship is going to say this is this is this should be properly translated that Junia is actually an apostle and they're well known. Like when you look at all the apostles, you see Andronicus and Junia and you go, they're especially like they raise up in notoriety above the other, other, other of the apostles. Um, <clears throat> so the current consensus does say that the new King James version translates it that way. The NASB translates it that way. The NIV, the NRSV, the NCV, the ISV, the RSV. There's a few translations that translate it that they were well known to the apostles, the CSB, the ESV, the LEB, and the NET. There's four that I found in a quick survey that do that. And, <clears throat> um, just the first thing to recognize is this, that it is, it, whenever you open your Bibles and you look at translations and you go, hey, this verse is translated differently, and not just in one translation, but in multiple translations, right? Like here's, here's five over here that have it this way. Here's three that have it this way. Usually that's a way of telling those of us who don't know the ancient languages that there's a legitimate discussion on this passage, right? That, that sometimes things are difficult to translate and that's a clue that that's what's happening here. 
uh, Craig Keener, he actually says that the, the view that they're not apostles is grammatically possible, but I'm going to walk you through the three reasons he gives. He's an egalitarian scholar. The three reasons that Craig Keener gives on why he thinks it should be translated that Junia is an apostle. Then we'll be discussing <clears throat> what, what that means. What kind of apostle was she? If she was, then I will challenge the idea that she was actually an apostle because I, I think that, um, it, it seems to me that it may be incorrect, that the consensus is, is likely wrong. But one step at a time. So um, Craig Keener gives three arguments, and I'm highlighting them with three highlights in front of you on the page. He says that uh, it's grammatically possible that they're just well-known to the apostles, that Andronicus and Junia are, have, have, you know, they're well-respected by the apostles. And, and that would fit, you know, uh, a letter of recommendation. Right, where you're saying, hey, these people who know them well think very highly of them, and they're people who you respect. Um, <clears throat> but he says three reasons why he thinks that's not the case. Number one, uh, some people think that of note among the apostles, and I have this on your screen here, of note among the apostles, uh, means simply that the apostles thought well of them, and it's grammatically possible, but, and he says here, Paul nowhere refers to the apostles as a group to whose opinion he appeals. Now, Craig Keener's a legitimate and well-respected scholar and all around really, really great guy as far as I can tell from the interactions I've had with him as well as uh, just seeing his interviews and stuff like that. He just kind of glows with, with, with niceness in a good way, in a positive way, in a very genuine way. But I think this, there's a problem with this. And I, I say the reason why I say that is because you know, I'm not trying to attack the, the man himself in any way. But I think there's a problem with this. Um, he says that nowhere else does Paul refer to the apostles, quote, the apostles as a group to whose opinion he appeals. I don't really see the weight of this argument, okay? This is one of three, but this one, I see. I don't see any weight to it. There's icy weight on one of them in particular. I'll get there in a minute. Um, if, like, okay, why do I need Paul to do it elsewhere in order for Paul to do it here? I, I don't know why. I don't know why I need that. Um, but also, I would add to this that I think Paul does do this elsewhere. And so if, if this argument has weight, then I think it actually may backfire because as far as I can tell, Galatians 2.9, uh, Paul appeals to the apostles as a group to whom is a, whose opinion he wants people to consider. He says, when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They're affirming God's call upon his life, and he's speaking this to the Galatians who were doubting Paul's the genuineness of Paul's apostleship. Now, Paul, Paul's nuanced here. People think Paul's just disregarding the apostles in Galatians 2. He's not. What he's saying is that he was called from God. He doesn't need their affirmation for himself to know his calling. But he appeals to them for the sake of the Galatians so that there's an outside confirmation for them to recognize his calling. I think that's a more nuanced perspective on Paul. So he does seem to appeal to them. Now, you can, and maybe Craig Keener would push back and say, but Mike, Paul doesn't use the phrase, the apostles there. He says, James, Cephas, and John. That's Peter, right? Cephas is Peter. Um, that's true. He doesn't use the phrase, the apostles. But now we're, I think, really nitpicking if that was the pushback. I mean, he appeals to their opinion. Why wouldn't he also be able to appeal to their opinion in the um, Romans 16 passage. Um, the second reason <clears throat> that he gives is that the most natural reading, this is the second highlight there, just, just over halfway down the quote. Indeed, the most natural and common sense of among a group means that they are members of that group. 
That's the most natural and common sense reading. Um, I'm going to actually devote space to this down below where we're going to push back on that using some recent scholarship. It's actually fairly recent that as far as I can tell is not very well known yet. And so maybe this will help get some scholars to watch and consider some of those arguments better. Um, but yeah, I don't know if, if it is the most natural reading. We'll push back on that. And the third reason he gives is this is how the Greek fathers and most modern scholars take the phrase. Now, I don't want to dismiss this. This seems weighty to me. Um, when he says the Greek fathers, what he means is uh, ancient Christians. They're post the apostles, right? They're, we're talking second, third, fourth, fifth century. But they speak Greek as their as their language. Like they speak Greek and they interpreted it as Junia being an apostle. Chrysostom is an example of a church father who thought Junia was an apostle. And this is something he talks about. He's like, wow, Paul calls her well-known. Not, not just an apostle, but well-known among the apostles. So that's actually weighty. I think that's weighty and that needs to be answered. And that's going to be a lingering thing, even after I answer everything else, that it may still convince you that not, my conclusions are wrong. I'm just trying to put it all out there. I want, I want all my cards on the table because I just want you to think whatever I'm thinking. I want you to learn to think biblically and process these things. It's weighty that a consensus of scholars and ancient and the consistently ancient Greek fathers thought that this meant she was an apostle. That's that's a pretty weighty argument. The other two I don't consider very weighty at the moment. So first though, let's ask this question before we analyze that, before I push back and say, I don't think Junia was actually an apostle. Um, if Junia is an apostle, let's, let's just live in that world where the consensus is. I should interact with this because what I'll share with you later in this video is, is not as, I'm not as confident of it as I'd like to be. So I want to, I want to have like a fallback plan in case I later go, well, I changed my mind. I was wrong. Junia was an apostle. So if she's an apostle, um, as a consensus does hold, what does it mean? Like what kind of apostle was she? Because the word apostle, apostolos in the Greek, it doesn't mean, you know, the special leaders that Jesus appointed in the church. That's not what the word means in the Greek. It, it's a word that was used for all kinds of people. You know, if, if I sent a messenger to you, you would say, oh, he was your apostolos, Mike. You sent him to me. Just, I mean, it, just a messenger with no authority, right? That, except to communicate a message. So <clears throat> the word itself has a variety of meanings and it's used in the New Testament in a variety of ways. And this is why, this is why the majority of scholars, even though the consensus and I'm using the, these words carefully here. The consensus holds she was an apostle, but the majority of that consensus believe that she was not an apostle of the highest rank. The majority of them think that she was more of like a missionary or a, per, or a person who witnessed the resurrection, but not in the office of apostle, like big capital A, the way that Peter or Paul was. And so that is the majority view. If we're going to just appeal to majority consensus, it, it has much less effect much less support for the egalitarian position because that same consensus, the majority of them hold that she was not like Peter, Paul, or in that real high office. Um, so let's run through the options. There's three uh, options I'll give, um, or maybe I'll, I'll focus on two. Um, so in the highest sense, this is, this is what would really be <clears throat> like a real, you know, would pack a lot of punch for the egalitarian position. The highest apostle sense, right? Like Peter, Paul, as, as if you have Andronicus and Junia, right? And then there's Peter and there's Paul and there's, you know, James and, and Judas, not Iscariot. And there's like all these different people there that are all like the, what we would consider very high up church leader apostles and with that, with that authority that Paul talks about, the authority of an apostle. And Andronicus and Junia are actually well-known among them. Like they rise up in notoriety um, above 
a lot of these other apostles. Um, what if they're in that role? If they're in that role, I mean, that's a huge piece of evidence in support of the egalitarian position. Um, now, Craig Keener points out that in support of their being in the highest position, he says there's no qualifier here. He doesn't say your apostles, those apostles, or he says the apostles. He doesn't say apostles of the churches. He doesn't say um, your apostles, which could be like just a messenger. Epaphroditus is called your messenger, your apostle to me. And he was just sending aid. He wasn't like in that high spiritual role. Um, he also goes on to add this. And I think this is kind of a strong argument for his position. Uh, on In the Two Views book on, on Women in Ministry, page 213, he says, more important, it is unsound interpretive methodology to read more a more specific meaning into a phrase than its use in that context and situation warrants. And so he's like, hey, the, the general term, the apostles, seems like without qualifier, seems like you should take it as in its highest sense. And so you don't want to add any more specific meaning than what, you know, is there in its, in its most uh, easy and general sense. And so I think that that seems like a fairly strong argument, but, but a, a pushback to this is that it seems like it might prove too much. One of the pushbacks to this being the highest possible sense of apostle is that they're not just apostles. They're actually more well-known than all the apostles, all the apostles that we know much more than them. And, and this is um, going to be a, a soft, but an interesting and important evidence against that view, right? We never hear about them, not in the book of Acts, not in the gospels. We never hear about them, not in the epistles, except in this one place, Andronicus and Junius. We just hear about them in Romans. Here, um, we, we, we don't know much about these two people, but if, you know, Craig Keener in the highest position of apostle is granted to Andronicus and Junia, they're not just in that position. They're in that position with more notoriety than the other apostles in that position. That seems like it proves too much. Let me take you guys to the passage again, because I don't want you to miss out on why this is a strong argument here. Uh, Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, right? If I take, um, that's the ESV. Let me let me go to uh, a different translation that grants the apostleship of them. Um, they're, they're of note among the apostles. <clears throat> this is New King James. So if they're of note among the apostles, they're not just apostles, they're also among that same group, the apostles, they're the noteworthy ones. You know, why in Galatians 2 didn't Paul say, Andronicus and Junia gave us the right hand of fellowship who seemed to be pillars among them? Why does he say Peter, James, and John? Right? Why is it Cephas, James, and John instead of them? It, it just seems like it doesn't fit. There seems to be a disconnect here. And we, we never hear about them. So that seems like, um, you could say it's an argument from silence. Right. But the reason why arguments from silence sometimes work is because you expect noise. <laughs> um, you know, what, did you hear a gunshot? No, I didn't hear one. So there wasn't one. That's an argument from silence. But if, if there was a gunshot, I would have expected to hear it. So it's, it's, a, it's an appropriate argument about silence because you would have expected noise. I think you'd expect noise about them. Another view is that they're the missionaries or church planters. Um, this is based on the idea that apostle means sent out. It's used in, a, again, it's used in a variety of ways in the, in the Bible. Sometimes it's used of like the 12. Sometimes it's used of just anybody who's sent out. And it's used in Greek, in, in Greek writings of non-religious, just people getting sent out to go do stuff. So some egalitarians actually take this view. A lot of egalitarians, um, the, uh, 
the quote I'll put up next is from Philip Payne. Philip Payne says that outstanding among the apostles, and he's a really strong egalitarian. Um, and by the way, you guys, I'm not going to keep telling you the books and page numbers because I don't think you're going to, they're going to land that well anyways. But what I am going to do is I'm going to, I'm going to link down below after this is over a, uh, give me like 10 minutes or an hour just to put it in there, a link to my notes. You can download my notes. You can see the exact quotes. You can see the page numbers and all that. You can have those and uh, check that out. And that'll be for the whole series. You'll be able to download and look at my notes. If you have trouble, just contact us through the website and we'll get them to you. But yeah, outstanding among the apostles implies that this is Philip Payne that Andronicus and Junia were revered missionaries recognized in the churches as having authority as ministers of the gospel. So he doesn't seem to think that they're apostles in that absolute highest sense. He also thinks, oh, they're missionaries and church planters, missionaries and church planters. Well, we, we know that missionaries and church planters aren't necessarily apostles in the, in the highest sense. That's interesting. But he adds this, Philip Payne adds, that this includes, quote, authority as ministers of the gospel. Now, the reason why this is important to an egalitarian, you have to see, you know, kind of like pick up the hints here. He's like, hey, I'm telling you Junia had authority. Okay, she wasn't like an, a, a one of the, the apostles in the biggest sense, but there's authority there as ministers of the gospel. This to me is very vague. I would actually affirm that anyways. I think that women and men all have authority as ministers of the gospel. As Christians, I think we all have that authority to, to go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to every creature. So I'm not really sure how to respond to that. That seems a bit vague. Um, but I just note that here's an egalitarian who thinks that they were missionaries. Uh, Linda Belleville thinks they were missionaries. She thinks they didn't even, uh, they, they actually got saved at Pentecost. Linda Belleville, another egalitarian scholar. But they got saved at Pentecost and weren't even, weren't following Jesus, weren't with him during his, his earthly ministry, didn't have, uh, weren't witnesses of the resurrection. So that's interesting. Um, uh, Blomberg, and I, I think that she also includes that they weren't witnesses. It seems that way from trying to understand her writings there. Uh, I could be wrong about that point. <clears throat> uh, Blomberg in the Two Views book, he suggests the following. Uh, now, he, he thinks that it represents to them as missionaries and church planters. Okay, but if they were missionaries and church planters, like what role does that have? If, if Junia is a church planter, what role does that have? He kind of chastises <laughs> egalitarians for going a little too far. He says, egalitarians then, concluding that, you know, they're missionaries and church planners. They jump in prematurely and argue if a woman could be an apostle, surely we have all the proof we need they could function in the highest roles of church leadership. Um, now, the first thing he notes in his, in, as you continue reading um, is that, you know, there's, there's varied usage of the word um, apostolos in Greek. I've already talked about that. And then he says this, in contemporary Christian parlance, we would call these people missionaries. Or if they don't travel too far from home, church planters. This too is clearly an authoritative role of Christian leadership that includes teaching doctrine to adult men and women, but it was not designated, designed to be an office of local ongoing church administration and instruction. Properly functioning missionaries should, in fact, be appointed, or perhaps even ordained, elders, appointing, excuse me, elders to perform this task thus working themselves out of a job so that they can move on to a new location. So what we've got here is uh, Craig Blomberg saying two things. Um, hey, you know, egalitarians are going too far, but he's going to meet them almost halfway, not quite halfway. He's, he's a very soft complementarian. And he's going to say, hey, there's still authority here, but it's not an office and it's not ongoing. But he does grant them authority to teach doctrine in like a gathering, a local, it seems like a local gathering, right, um, to men. 
but only temporarily, only to get the church set up. Now, I'm sympathetic to this view as possible. I'm going to lean a different way. Um, the, the thing I would absolutely agree with, women were missionaries in the early church. There were women who were missionaries. Like you, This is what Paul means when he calls them co-workers and co-laborers. Some act like this, this means they were elders and in the highest roles of leadership. I think it means that they were missionaries. He was going and doing missions and they were coming alongside um, and serving as well. And so this could make sense uh, if you have the, the complementarian position that uh, restrictions on women in ministry are, are specified just to the role of elder, but basically everything else you can conceive of is completely permissible. And if that's your view, if that, that's a very soft complementarian view, don't call it egalitarian because egalitarian would would regurgitate at the idea of accept elders. <laughs> that would be that's exactly the whole point of their view is that that's wrong. Um, but that that would be Blomberg's view. But I do think that Tom Schreiner offers us another nuance. Okay, I think Schreiner's done really interesting and good work. I think Blomberg has as well. Um, he agrees that it can be missionary, but then he goes on and, and he says, unlike Blomberg, there's something else you should consider. If Junia was an apostle, I'm quoting Tom Schreiner now, she probably functioned particularly as a missionary to the women. Ernst Kassemann observed that the wife can have access to the women's areas, which would not be generally accessible to the husband. Now, here's what he's adding. He's like, hey, if you have a, a missionary couple, Andronicus and Junia, and then that word apostle means they're of note among the missionaries, among those who've been sent out to, you know, go, they, they learned and then went in Jerusalem under the apostles, right? They learned and then they went out to help spread the word. And that did happen. A whole bunch of people went out. Well, maybe they're well known among them. And he adds, right, a woman is going to have access to places that men would not. And this is actually an interesting and important and culturally relevant nuance. A female missionary could be quite different than a male one. And simply acknowledging that you have Andronicus and Junia, there should at least be room for recognizing that they didn't function in the same way. I think that that is a presumption we're putting upon the text that's not there. Let's not forget the historical context, right? Society back then was even more gender separated than we are today. So women's ministry was a real need. It wasn't just for fun. There was a deep need there. Women missionaries could have access to areas that men could not, to people that men could not. And we have historical support for this. So female deacons, which there were lots of female deacons in the early church, they focused on ministry to women. That was their emphasis. The apostolic constitution lays it out. That there were female deacons, but that they would they, they didn't do everything the male deacon did. At least that that's how it was happening at that point in the early church. The they anointed women with oil for prayer so that men would not become compromised in their interactions. Um, they would in baptisms they would assist and baptize women. So there was there was women's ministry early on, and there's a need for it because you have a separated culture and you have a gospel that needs to go out into all people equally. And so I think that. Um, my conclusion is this, if, Jean, if, if Junia is a female apostle, well, before I give you the rest of my conclusion on Junia, let, let me say it real quick. Um, there is debate over whether Junia was male or female. Uh, this debate is largely settled, at least for the time being. It seems pretty clear that Junia was female. The, the male version of that name didn't really come about for quite a long time. And we have good reason to think that Junia was female. Um, there, there are some who would argue otherwise. It didn't seem to me that it was worth spending time on, the idea that Junia was male, just based on my research. So I'm not going to, I just want to acknowledge that it's, it's something some people say, 
if you've heard it and you've heard arguments for it, I just want to ask if your confidence is over, you're overconfident because you haven't actually heard arguments against it. And I'd encourage you to at least do some research on that. Listen to um, someone recounting the historical evidence about the use of the name. <clears throat> so if Junia is a female apostle, let's say she's a female apostle, it seems that the majority is right. She's not likely an apostle in the sense that the 12 or Paul were apostles. Neither her or her husband were one of the 12. Neither of them shows up in any context in Acts. Uh, the two have apostles, um, uh, to have, excuse me, to have these two apostles who were more notable than the 12 without their mention seems very unlikely. We would expect something to be said there. And the word apostle does have a legitimate variety of meanings. And so, that should lean us towards thinking that they were missionaries. Now, it seems to me that you, at least if you're egalitarian, I don't think you can actually be confident that she had a, a teaching and authority role over men, whether she was, whatever you, whatever you want to call her as an apostle, uh, in the same sense that elders do. They were likely missionaries. That's the majority view there, and I would agree with that. If they were apostles, they were probably missionaries. Um, even several egalitarians say this. Linda Belleville thinks, again, that they didn't become Christian until... Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 after Christ generally stopped appearing to people, right? Paul was like one born out of due season. Um, reasonably, she could have been an apostle to, or a, a missionary, you know, to women. Could have had a, and she's here partnering with her husband. So it, it seems to me that there's decent evidence for this in the, in the, in the bifurcation of the society, very gendered, different, more gendered than our culture. Our culture uh, isn't as much and we have to recognize that that's not how it is for most cultures throughout time. So women preaching the gospel to men, to women, to all of the above is, is right and good. But I don't think we can push this so much. We have this one phrase, Junia, you know, she's of note among the apostles. If you take it that way, I think you still don't have the egalitarian sort of trump card to say you guys need to rethink 1 Timothy 2 and these other passages. Although we will be thinking about those when we get there. Now, this is where things are going to get a little tricky. Um, in 2001, here's why I'm going to say that I think the consensus of scholars might be wrong. And I, I, I really want to say here, I think that what I'm about to share with you is accurate and true. But I'm, I'm acknowledging to you, this goes beyond my understanding of Greek. And so I'm, I'm not fully able to vet as well as I would like these arguments I'm about to share with you. I'm just going to summarize them with you, tell you I'm leaning this way. And that's why I, I went ahead and did hey, if she's an apostle, how would I interpret that? Because here's an area where I'm, I'm just less confident than I'd like to be. But I do think that this is the case. Um, in 2001, here's a scholarly debate. I'm going to rehash <clears throat> for you 15 years of scholarly debate really quick. So in 2001, Michael Burr and Dan Wallace, uh, Dan Wallace especially is a very highly respected, uh, world-renowned world Greek scholar, uh, published a paper defending the reading that Junia is not an apostle, rather she's well-known to the apostles. This paper got some stir, uh, but let me just walk through some of their logic and I'll walk through it as briefly as possible, but I will link the paper down below as soon as my stream is over. I'll put the link down there for you. You can read it for free. Uh, their logic is, it goes like this. While there's consensus from scholars on Junia being an apostle, that's what they call an inclusive view. She's one of the apostles and not merely well-known to the apostles. That's an exclusive view. Here's the apostles and they know about them. The consensus is arrived at with thin evidential support and little in the way of solid examination. So they start their statement by saying, hey guys, the consensus was not arrived at very well. 
And this sometimes happens with scholars. They just assume things. It's like another one of these is the scholarly assumption that Jesus didn't speak Greek. It's everywhere. People assume it. They base their arguments on it. But the evidence for it seems thin. And it seems like there's strong evidence that Jesus probably did speak Greek. Uh, really good evidence for it. And it, it just a whole generation of scholars thinks he didn't. And they haven't really thought it thought about it much. They just assumed it. So, um, and I'm not the only one who says that. Uh, Peter Williams says that. And I think he's right. So in sum, I'm going to quote from their paper. They're going to give a summary of their view of how scholarship has just kind of absorbed this view. In sum, over the past three decades, the exclusive view has been only scarcely attested in translations or exegetical and theological literature, yet the arguments against it are largely a kind of snowballing dogma that has little of substance at its core. So they're going to then marshal two kinds of evidence. Having said that the scholarly view is meh, it's not, it's not well evidenced, it's just strongly believed, um, they're going to marshal two kinds of evidence. One is lexical and the other is synta syntactical, right? The syntax of the Greek. Um, lexical is easy, okay? Lexical is just the definition of words. They're going to look at the word and ask, what could it mean? Could these words mean what we're saying it means? Then they're going to look at the syntactical evidence. This is where Greek gets hard is syntax. This is about the placement of words, word order. You know, in English, it'd be like where you put that comma changes the meaning of a sentence. And so... If I said, you are my only friend versus you are only my friend, these are two very different phrases, right? You are, you're my only friend. That's a huge compliment. You're only my friend. That's, that's actually negative, even though I'm kind of affirming similar things. So that's an example of syntax with the same exact words in the sentence mattering, uh, changing the meaning. So the lexical evidence, um, the word well-known to right, or well-known, I should say, is is the word episemos. And this is a Greek word for that's translated well-known in Romans 16. Junia and Andronicus, they're well-known. It can mean, quote, well-known, prominent, outstanding, famous, notable, or notorious. There's two different streams of meaning that are used with this word episemos, or episemoi, depending on, here it's moi because it's plural. In Greek, they, they oi to make a plural. They don't add an S to it. They make, they oi it. So episemoi. Um, all right. So there's one sense where episemos would mean um, there's an implied comparative sense, like they're, they're outstanding or prominent among the apostles or the other way. It could go the other way, which is they're famous or well-known to the apostles. That's an elative sense. You don't need to remember all that. Here's the two terms I want you to remember as we continue this discussion. Uh, there's one view of episemos that is inclusive. That is, they are apostles and they're well-known among them. Then there's the exclusive view. They're not part of the group. They're outside of the group. They are well-known to the apostles. This um, is, there's no debate about this. Everybody agrees on this, right? Like Craig Keener said, hey, grammatically, that's possible. It could mean that. So the lexical evidence is only to say, like, and I think everyone pretty much agrees here, at least almost everybody agrees, Um the lexical evidence is only to say it's possible for the word episemos to go either way. They could be well-known to or well-known among the apostles. A simple way of putting this is that the word for well-known can be used for someone who's an apostle or is known by the apostles. And what we have to do then is go to the syntax. We have to look at the whole phrase and the general context for clues as to which one of those is intended. Now, there's a whole, uh, there's a whole argument that's going to depend then on this one idea, this one idea. I'm, I'm, you could read the whole mini-page paper, but here, here's how it goes. Well-known 
their argument is that well-known is being used in an exclusive sense, not an inclusive one. And it's not proved by the word episemos. That could go either way. It's proved by the fact that this word is combined with other words in a very particular sense. Then that means they're well-known to the apostles, but they aren't apostles. Um, in the For the Greek people out there, it's they say it's because it's in the dative, not the genitive sense. Don't worry. Here's my dumbed-down explanation. Um, they say that when episemos is used in this special way, right, that we're going to look at in, in the Greek here in a second, uh, it means well-known to rather than well-known among. And the way they prove it, this is the interesting part of the paper. This is the part that stirred some scholarship at the time. They surveyed dozens of examples of how episemos is used in Greek when it's done the way it is in Romans 16 versus when it's done other ways. And they found a consistent rule. When the person is part of the group, well-known among the apostles, right? When they're part of the group, the Greek is written in a, quote, genitive sense, genitive. But when the person's not part of the group, it's written in a dative sense. And the dative sense is what you have in Romans 16. They said the rule was really consensus, uh, consistent. It was consistent across many examples. And the scholarly consensus, they conclude at the end of their paper, you guys, I know I'm getting, this is heady stuff. You could just, you could just ignore it all if you want, but um, I need to explain expose you to what I think is a relevant area of debate on a tough or complicated, challenging, you know, Greek issue that I think people aren't paying attention to, especially in scholarship even now. So I could be wrong because I'm not a Greek scholar, um, but that's my opinion about it. So I'm going to share with you. So to prove it, they survey these dozens of examples and they say the rule is consistent that, so therefore, the scholarly consensus, they say, is almost certainly wrong. Almost certainly wrong. They're very strong in this paper. And scholars usually are pretty soft <laughs> in the way that they write these kinds of things. They're very strong. Let me quote to you from page 90 of, of, the, of their uh, paper. It says, it would be more accurate to say that, and I'm going to give you the Greek, episemoi in tois apostolois almost certainly means well-known to the apostles. And this is why like the NET or the ESV, recent translations have gone with that view. It's, it's partly because of this paper. This paper had a big splash. But of course, when you throw your glove into the ring of the egalitarian complementarian debate, other people's gloves come as well, um, as I know already in this series. Um, so several people have pushed back and notable among them, <laughs> No pun intended there. Notable among them is Richard Bauckham, who published the following initial rebuttal in his book, Gospel Women, Studies of Named the Named Women in the Gospels. I've really liked some of Bauckham's work, by the way, and I've, I've recommended it to others. Um, haven't read this whole book. I've just surveyed the, the part where he deals with their argument. So in his book on page 192 through 200 of, of the Kindle edition, because there's different editions of this, um, you you will find it's in, I think it's on earlier pages, even though it didn't say second edition. I don't know, Kindle, get your act together. <laughs> on the Kindle edition, it's page 192. Um, now, he pushes back really hard on this. And Craig Blomberg, again, complementarian scholar, he goes, hey, Bauckham refuted that paper. Burr and Wallace have been refuted. It, you know, their points were refuted. So Bauckham's top points were this. He says that they're right, that the meaning of the phrase um, has been the, and this is important, has been the object of, quote, almost no su substantive discussion. So Bauckham actually agrees with them that the scholarly consensus has been arrived at with almost no really thoughtful, careful analysis. So he, and he also agrees that 
the term can be used in either ways. It could be used in the inclusive or exclusive sense. Where he pushes back is on their survey of examples of similar uses of this Greek phrase in ancient Greek writing. And he says that their evidence doesn't actually support their conclusion. Um, one of their one of his complaints, and he repeats this over and over again in his in his book, is that they say they have dozens of examples, but they kept back evidence because they only gave 29 examples and not dozens. Uh, 29, he says, is considerably short of a few dozen, vague though this phrase is. That's a quote from Bakum. He continually brings this up. He basically says, like, whatever they're saying, you have to put a big question mark on all their data because you can't get statistics from incomplete evidence. And he says that Burr and Wallace claim every instance supports their hypothesis, but we don't know that. One of his biggest complaints is that they kept back evidence. Remember that because that'll be important when we read about the third bout, <laughs> round three in this, in this scholarly debate. So Richard Brockham, he doesn't actually bring any new examples. He doesn't bring counterexamples. He doesn't survey the literature himself to find all these examples, but he does reevaluate many of Burr and Wallace's examples. And his conclusions are, hey, in lots of their examples, it doesn't even mean what they say it means. Like they actually handled the data wrong. Uh, finally, he says they've ignored how the church fathers seem to agree that Junia is an apostle. Now, I, I didn't actually ignore it. They did talk about it in their paper, and that's not a totally a fair criticism. Um, but this won the day. I think this won the day. I think that Burr and Wallace's paper did a big splash, started to have an impact, and then Bauckham and a couple others pushed back on it, and that sort of like ended the discussion for a while and restored the consensus. That was my my perception as I was been reading stuff on this stuff. But there's one more paper to consider because that was 2000, um, gosh, uh, what, what year was that? 2008 or something like that, Bauckham's book? I don't recall right now. At any rate, it wasn't until 2015 that we finally got another response from Michael Burr. This paper, which I will link below as well, um, is Burr's response Finally, <laughs> after many years, and I don't actually see this being discussed by scholars. Like I, I didn't, I'm not saying nobody has, um, but in the more recent like egalitarian stuff, when this topic came up, I didn't see responses um, in my research on this topic. So this paper, which is called, <laughs> okay, it's got a bunch of Greek in it, right? That's that Greek phrase, episemoi in tois apostolois. That's the Greek phrase on the top of the page there. Uh, in Romans 16, 7, as well known to the apostles, further defense and a new evidence and new evidence. And he actually does bring a lot of new evidence and he responds to Wallace, uh, excuse me, um, Bacham, and he responds to Belleville who critiqued him and Eldon J. Epp, all three of them who had written stuff in, in critique of him. Linda Belleville's arguments, in my opinion, were really poor there. Uh, J. Epp's were a little bit better and Bacham's were the most serious. And so I'm, I'm interested in following Bacham's stuff in this case. So he takes on these criticisms and he brings in a new wealth of data. Remember, one of the big criticisms was that they didn't share enough data. So he brings 71 new, not from the original paper, but new texts that all further support the idea that Romans 16, 7 would likely have been used. It's using the genitive. It's using the sense because it's saying that they are well known to the apostles, not among them. 71 further texts. He brings 36 new texts. All but one of them really parallel Romans 16, 7 in ex exactly in the grammatical structure. And these 36 texts support it again that the um, the dative means well-known to the apostles. The 
there's one example he brings that does go counter to his hypothesis, but Burr claims it's not really an exact parallel to Romans 16.7. Again, I'm going to link this paper down below. I'm just going to summarize some of his findings because this would be a um, way too long <laughs> if I tried. And I'm, and I'm not really qualified to, to arbit, be the arbiter of this debate. But I will form opinions, and you guys will too. It's just how life is going to work. Um, so he also responds, though, to Bauckham's specific examples. And this, I thought, from my limited understanding of Greek, I thought was impressive, okay? He responds specifically, says, Hey, Bauckham, you claimed we used this example wrong. Let me show you why that claim is false. And he walks through multiple of the examples that Bauckham gave that were meant to refute Burr and Wallace's original paper. I think he restores the, the dignity of their original paper by doing this. He seems to respond well. And when it comes to the church fathers... He does talk about it, as they did in the original video, uh, original uh, paper. He says that only Chrysostom seems to be the weighty one because he knew Greek well. And so when we say Greek fathers agree, he's like, it's not, there's not a, this unanimity of wise, knowledgeable Greek fathers that you, you would think so. Um, rather, there's just Chrysostom who knows Greek well and seems to be the weighty one to consider. And he says, but that the overwhelming evidence suggests that they're just wrong. Or they're getting it from tradition more than exegesis. And um, that's probably the softer part of the paper because, again, you know, it, it's, 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 it's something to remember that you have these church fathers that, that don't agree. Chrysostom, you would think, would know. But it's a weird little grammatical thing. So could he have gotten it wrong? Could there be church tradition that's influencing him and so he overlooks it? That's definitely a possibility. So I'm not qualified to arbit, be the arbiter of all this stuff, but I will put it down below. And any scholars who are watching my series, I, I do hope you'll look at Burr's paper. I think it was well-written. I think he brought tons of new data. And I think my conclusion is uh, Junie is probably not actually an apostle. She's probably well-known to them. And um, if she was, then she's likely a missionary and she may have been focused on women's ministry. I say all this because... Um, means that this sort of like egalitarian trump card which is used all the time it's used all the time you know the junior was an apostle so how can you how can you possibly suggest that women shouldn't hold any and all leadership roles that that trump card doesn't seem to work it seems to be incorrect it's based on very little information that could and seems likely to mean something different than what the egalitarians need it to mean because you need her to not just be any old kind of apostle She's got to have teaching authority over men as part of that role. And um, I don't think that we have reason to say that she does. So other female apostles, there, there actually are others. Let me share with you um, N.T. Wright. He says there are many women apostles. I played this clip previously, but today I'll be responding to it. Oh, hold on, hold on, hold on. Um, I need just need to restart that clip and then you guys will hear it. The first people to be told to tell other people that Jesus is alive again. Mm. Mary Magdalene and the others. Those who are the first to see the risen Jesus. Those who are the first to be entrusted with the news that he has been raised from the dead. This is of incalculable significance. Mary Magdalene and the others are apostles to the apostles. Okay, this is actually, him, you know, at that lecture, he's actually just reading from his his paper that he ended up putting in his book. Okay, so in, in T. Wright's book, Surprised by Scripture, page 69, he has a whole chapter on women in ministry. He says it is, quote, and I'll read it again. I want us to understand the point. He says it is of incalculable significance 
Mary Magdalene and the others are the apostles to the apostles. So Junia, we talked about her. We're talking now about Mary and the others. Was Mary an apostle? Were, were they the first apostles? He says, we should not be surprised that Paul calls a woman named Junia an apostle in Romans 16, 7. And I'm going to talk about this quote too, because this is, in my opinion, this is equivocation, which is changing the meanings of words partway through an argument. Um, in, if an apostle is a witness to the resurrection, there were women who deserved that title before any of the men. So here's the equivocation. If apostle only means witness to the resurrection, then definitely there were women apostles. Like we should all agree on that. <laughs> um, but does every witness to the resurrection have like the authority of the apostles in that sense? I don't think so. I don't think there's any reason to believe that that's the case. And so it no longer carries the authority it needs to to be relevant to the debate. In making Mary and the others an apostle, N.T. Wright and others have degraded the meaning of apostle to no longer be relevant to the discussion of women in leadership. So apostle in the sense of the office, like where Paul claims he can come to Corinth and use his authority as an apostle, like put things in order, that's more than merely witnessing Jesus. It's a commission as well. And it's not just any commission, right? They're... It's it's a big deal. I, I hope you guys can see it. I think that any, I think that reasonable people can see this pretty clearly. Apostle to the apostles. That's using the two, the word apostle, and the word apostles in two very different senses. She's the apostle messenger, to the apostles, authoritative leaders with massive roles of grounding and foundational leadership in the in the church. Right. These are two very different kinds of apostles then. And I think that that's, um, I mean, that's it. That's the whole thing for Mary. Now, Mary, throughout the text of scripture, there's lots of opportunities to call her an apostle. Mary Magdalene, you could call her an apostle at any point in time. She never called that. Never. Not even when she's told, go and tell them, right, that, that, that you know, that, that Christ is risen. Not even then. Not called an apostle. So just being on a, being told to go do something doesn't make you one of the apostles. It just seems so bad. Like the, this is unfortunately, um, it's the worst arguments that end up persuading the most people because people just don't think clearly about this stuff. They want a meme version and then they get that from certain leaders and then they run with it. And I was surprised how many people were like, Mike, you got to deal with N.T. Wright. And I'm like, what has he done that's really significant on this issue? He hasn't really done much to be honest, but it's impacted a lot of people. And I think because it's kind of, you know, meme status or slogan status. You know, it's it's not really well constructed argumentation. Another apostle uh, move is brought by Craig Keener, who says that Deborah, Deborah is like an Old Testament apostle. So he says the following. So we'll talk about Deborah now. If Moses and the prophetic leaders were in the were the closest Old Testament equivalent to New Testament apostles, Deborah merits a place among them. Um. So you guys understand this this perspective, this view. This is Dr. Craig Keener. Um, let me just make a few observations. Moses and Deborah had very, very different roles. Um, any of the judges don't have a role like Moses had. Like, like These are very, very different roles. But this whole idea of prophetic leaders being the closest thing, Old Testament equivalent to New Testament apostles, it's based on two things that I think we should not do. One is identifying Old Testament equivalents to New Testament apostles. This is a futile effort in my view. 
There are no Old Testament equivalents to New Testament apostles. Even if there is some sort of typological thing, it's typological, it's not an equivalent. Right? Typology is not equivalent. There's types of Christ, typologies of Christ, but those things aren't Christ. Right? This is not equivalent. So there, they might be there to teach you something, but it's not the same thing. It's a futile effort in my view. What grounding is there for thinking that there's any equivalence to, from New Testament apostles to Old Testament? Uh, Moses doesn't have any equivalence in the Bible other than Jesus. Moses specifically, he's the, he's the leader we should probably focus on. But he, Jesus, he's the new Moses, man. Nobody else, not the apostles, Jesus. So th that's based on Deuteronomy. I mean, that there's prophecy that there'll be a prophet like, like Moses and there never had come one like him. So not Deborah, Jesus. Prophets had greater limitations on them also than apostles. We'll talk about that next week. Prophecy as the argument for uh, women teaching, which is actually will help balance out complementarians, I think, who go too far. But um, yeah. Another, the second thing this is based on, this idea of like uh, Old Testament equivalence is supposing that equivalency means women as, prof as prophets, that that leads naturally to women as apostles. I mean, wouldn't a better equivalency be women as prophets in the Old Testament naturally leads to women as prophets in the New Testament? <laughs> like that seems like an actual equivalent because they're still prophets. It's the same thing. But this is what happens, unfortunately, when you can't find women clearly as apostles in the New Testament. You look to the old. It's reaching. You go somewhere else for it, right? It's reaching and it's not a method we can happily apply elsewhere. For instance, let me give an example of why I think this is a bad Bible study method. Uh, if Moses directed the civil affairs of the people of Israel as a governmental ruler, civil affairs, including like excommunication, uh, 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 not excommunication, um, ex execution, that's the word, execution, does that mean that New Testament apostles can direct the affairs of the people of Israel if they're the equivalent of Moses? Or perhaps of the church. Should apostles lead the church to start our own nation where we have our own laws so that wherever Christianity goes, it brings a rebellion and a revolution where Christians are trying to gather around their new governmental leaders and and get out of Egypt, so to speak, because the, because the New Testament apostles are like the Old Testament Moses. No, this is not how we do theology. We have clear teaching in the New Testament that would refute these ideas. But when you look to the Old Testament for these soft parallels that aren't established clearly with teaching, when you do typology, like it's like it's the way you're going to prove stuff that you can't find clearly taught in the Bible, it's going to lead you into error. So it seems uh, that there are no female apostles in the sense of an official, very high church leadership role. Catch me there? In the sense of a church leadership role, that of like Peter or Paul or one of them. So that was the positive data. I just covered all the egalitarians like statements like here's an apostle, there's an apostle, there you know, here's apostles and I disagree all across the board. Um, some will say that's because I'm biased and I would say, well, maybe you're saying that about me because you're biased because <laughs> I did bring data to try to bring evidence to support each of my conclusions. And I'm quite open to changing my mind. I was hoping to change my mind on this topic actually more than I did. So um, let's talk about the negative data. That was the egalitarians, like bringing all their arguments. Let's talk about the arguments that the complementarians bring against this uh, apostolic thing. And their negative data is something that's probably occurred to most of you as you're watching. Hey, weren't all the 12 apostles men? Right? This is, I mean, it's, and, and I want to be careful here. It's not a command. Jesus didn't say only men can be apostles. There's no teaching in the Bible that says only men can be apostles. We only have examples to look at. But 
Jesus chose 12 apostles and we know they were all male. That's significant, right? They're, the ones that are called pillars, they're all male. They're, all of them are male. All the apostles that were that, that are clearly apostles, except for Junia, who I think was not one of the, even if she was an apostle, not one of those kinds, she was just a missionary. All of the apostle apostles, they're all male. So the complementarians, they say, hey, this fact of all male apostles, you combine that with clear teaching about only men being elders, and it's just, it's just synergy that we have this consistency. And this is something Craig Blomberg will say a lot is there's consistency, Old and New Testament, that the highest roles of spiritual leadership are to be occupied by men. This is something that God has orchestrated. And that would create consistency. Now, most egalitarians are going to respond the same way. Um, they're going to respond the way Craig, uh, Craig Keener does. Let me share with you. Did I hope I put that in my notes. Not that one. This one. All right. There we go. Uh-oh. Strange thing. Okay, hold on. I'm going to take a moment and bring this, this 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 quote up for you. I don't know why I have the wrong quote here. That's a, That's the... Oh, there it is. There it is. There it is. Okay. Um, this is uh, Dr. Craig Keener. He says, because of apostles' special rank and their role in breaking new ground for God's kingdom, women would have faced special obstacles in that culture. And they would in many cultures even today. Thus, we should not expect great numbers of women apostles in scripture. So this is always the drumbeat of egalitarians. I've, I've read it many, many times from many sources, right? Once I get a quote from someone, I'm like, oh, I'll share this. But I've also continued reading it as I've read a lot of different, I've read many more authors than the ones I'm quoting to you guys. It's the drumbeat of egalitarians. Any indication of roles held by men and not by women is always explained as some sort of cultural acquiescence. Hey, they couldn't, you know, they didn't rather because it would cause cultural problems in that very patriarchal culture. Um, but this seems to me to be in danger of being an unfalsifiable theory. As I've read many, and you guys will see as we continue going, especially when we get to Ephesians, uh, Ephesus, when we talk about 1 Timothy, there's just so much unfalsifiable stuff that comes out uh, from the egalitarian side. I mean, let, and let me just say, guys, I share my frustration. When, when I read um, scholars on this stuff, I started with egalitarians. I read a bunch of egalitarian stuff. And... Even in my notes, my private notes, I'm like typing stuff up and I'm going, huh, yeah, I, boy, that, yeah, that's a good point. I didn't, I never knew that. I didn't think that before. I, I, I mean, that, wow, that's a really strong claim. If that's true, then they're right. Maybe I should reinterpret that passage. And then as I went and unpacked those claims and said, well, is there any, what are the sources? What are the footnotes? Are there any ancient texts that are demonstrate the, the truth of that? And then I started really vetting these things. It was as though I had to pull away layers of confusion that had been created by egalitarian writings and this is honestly it's going to be more of that as we go and complementarians don't have everything right but egalitarians are fundamentally wrong on this topic it's just the sad reality that that those who should be helping people are creating confusion so this seems to be an unfalsifiable unfalsifiable theory do we have any way of telling the difference between god's preference and cultural preference Right? What, what, do we have any way of telling it? Or do we just assume anytime there's a man in leadership and a woman not, it's always culturally caused, period. So there are things that the Galatians will put forward. Oh, this is why the culture, this is why the culture helps us, you know, explain this. 
but I, Galatrians, I hope you hear me on this. You don't have any cultural evidence of this. You just have the idea that women were just more expected. L let me let me walk you through the arguments, okay? Um, were women left out of the 12 by Jesus because they were unlikely to be accepted by the culture as apostles? Here are several reasons why I don't think this is accurate. Um, Jesus chose apostles, for one thing, unlikely to be accepted from the start. Why on earth did Jesus choose a tax collector universally hated by the Jewish people? Jesus is saying he is there to reach. A tax collector, right? They they would use the, this phrase like a heathen and a tax collector as being the same basic equivalent kind of people. There were low, horrible individuals. Jesus chose fishermen whose Galilean accents, just the, this, the act, you know, it'd be like if they're from Alabama and you got the hillbilly, and a lot of people assume things about people from Alabama, right? Because they got like a hillbilly accent. And the, and the hillbillies who are in, in, you know, hillbilly accents who are encountering people other in other places continually have to deal with people thinking that they're unintelligent, people thinking that they're not respected, and it makes it harder for them to minister to people. But Jesus chose fishermen whose Galilean accents made them lose respect. He chose uneducated men who were mocked by the, the people for being uneducated. They had no prior religious rank. What I'm saying is we have good evidence to suggest Jesus did not choose his apostles based on how well received they would be by the people. We have good evidence to think Jesus didn't do much based on how well it would be received by people in the culture. To say it's cultural presumes something that's not present in the text that isn't evidenced elsewhere. If Jesus picked, you know, well-respected men across the board for the 12, we would actually have evidence to support the egalitarian claim, but we don't. Um, Philip Payne says it was due to the following. He adds another layer onto this. And he says, it's one thing for a number of women to be mentioned as following Jesus from time to time in his preaching in the towns, but traveling full time for three years with late night meetings, such as the Garden of Gethsemane and spending periods of time in the wilderness are quite another thing. Strong cultural objections and moral suspicions would undoubtedly be raised. Okay, so um, Jesus didn't bring women as apostles because they would have too intimate of a close relationship with men. And then that would, that would make them look like they were in sexual immorality in that culture. So let me itemize these things. I'll leave, actually, I'll leave the Payne quote up, Philip Payne's quote, and I'll itemize his points. Um, first, uh, being an apostle or a disciple required being with Jesus in an intimate setting intimate settings, right? And a woman couldn't do that without looking immoral to the people around them. So were, were, are these insurmountable problems for Jesus where he couldn't choose women because of it? You could think that they are, um, but I would say, why not have women together in their own cluster, right? The apostles were all grouped in twos and those twos were even further grouped. Why not have women like a pair of female apostles? Why not only meet with them in certain settings? Like, couldn't, couldn't he do that? Like, why not skip the late night meetings in general? Jesus actually did speak alone with, say, the woman at the well. And that was incredibly questionable. And every egalitarian will tell you how, how you know, countercultural this was. He's talking alone to a woman who's a Samaritan. This is considered a, a big deal. The disciples didn't even like it when they saw it. Why, why is it Jesus is willing to break convention there, but Jesus can't break convention when it comes to women apostles? Jesus let a woman who was known for being an immoral woman, he let her anoint him with oil and wipe his feet with her hair, even though that publicly looked very embarrassing to him. He didn't seem to care. Jesus doesn't seem concerned about those things that much. 
right? He regularly does things to trigger people's wrongful accusations. He does things on the Sabbath. He does things in his teaching. What I'm suggesting here is that Jesus just didn't care that much about being winsome in that fashion. He just didn't care that much. I don't think he did as you read the actual Gospels. So what I'm suggesting is that Philip Payne's theory here is based on an aversion to cultural objections. And Jesus didn't seem to have that aversion. Um, there's another reason that Philip Payne gives, which is why women couldn't be apostles. And it wasn't because of culture in the sense of rejecting them. It was because of their previous obligation. So he says, married women could hardly leave their families for such a long period. And single women would have been even more suspicious to have chosen women disciples would have raised legitimate suspicion, undermining the gospel. I, I guess this really is a point about, um, cultural acquiescence. I don't want to look it to look bad. So I won't have women apostles, but I see major problems here. Let me offer one and then I'll offer three more. <laughs> uh, one married men did this. Married men left their families for a long period of time, but the disciples were generally married and they left their, their families for long periods of time. So why, why couldn't married women like it? Like, why not? But Jesus says, you know, come and follow me. Why don't you come and follow him? We also have the fact that many women did follow Jesus from Galilee. The scripture tells us they did. Maybe their kids were grown. Maybe they were old enough that they didn't have kids in the house anymore. You know, they might've been 40 with full grown kids who were already married. Maybe they didn't have any kids at all. Maybe they were just like single, but I don't think Jesus would have had that big of a problem with that. The text just doesn't say, here's my second, um, I guess this is my third objection. I guess I have five objections to this point. <laughs> I'm leaving it on the screen so you can think about my objections while you reread it, but the text doesn't say this. The, the Bible doesn't anywhere say that women had restrictions in following Jesus because of family commitments where Jesus expected people to be committed to him above their families, that Jesus um, didn't want it to look suspicious, even though Jesus expressly does things that look suspicious, even with women. And he didn't want the gospel to be undermined, even though Jesus does things that he could avoid, that, under, that undermine the gospel in the sense of it not being well received by people because he realizes there's more going on than just winning people through persuasion. There's a spiritual issue. All right, let's go to the next objection, number four. Uh, Jesus spoke to the woman at the well all alone. Uh, I bring this up again because it's important. That would have been seen the same way that Payne, like Payne should have said, Jesus probably didn't really speak to the woman at the well, oops, over here, because of these reasons. Wouldn't they apply? But Jesus did that anyways. So Jesus is doing things that don't seem to connect with this description of Jesus. We don't have any case of Jesus avoiding suspicion to the degree that it would uh, prohibit him from appointing leaders he wants. And finally, uh, women traveled with Jesus. They really did travel with Jesus. I'm going to give you a couple scriptures on this, but women actually traveled with Jesus and supported him out of their own riches. Some steps were probably taken to avoid impropriety, I imagine, but I'm just guessing here, right? But probably they were to avoid some degree of impropriety, but they didn't keep, those steps didn't keep the women from traveling with Jesus. Why would it keep them from being apostles? Even like a pair of women working as a team. So let me take you to a scripture that you may not have noticed this, but this is kind of just neat. Notice the things you never noticed before in scripture. And many women who followed Jesus from Galilee ministered to him, uh, ministering to him were there looking on from afar. Here's women who followed Jesus from Galilee to Jerusalem. They were, and they were ministering to him. They didn't just happen to go um, on a trip to Passover, you know, to, for, to Jerusalem for Passover. They're following Jesus, right? From Galilee all the way to Jerusalem. This is, this is a, a journey. 
It's a significant journey. They follow the path Jesus took. They stayed with him. So they traveled with him. Look at Luke chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. Now it came to pass afterward that he went through every city and village. Jesus goes through every city and village, preaching and bringing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. And the 12 were with him, right? Because they go everywhere Jesus is going, right? Well, who else is with them? And certain women who'd been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, out of whom had come seven demons, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who provided for him from their substance. They were what? They were with him like the apostles were, but they weren't apostles. Like, I'm just trying to read the text. Let it say what it says. This seems to refute Payne's um, interpretation. This is a really big deal. All the clear references to apostles are men. Some people reply that, you know, hey, many of the apostles aren't named. Maybe there was female apostles that aren't named. Um, I think that's a false argument from silence. That's a bad kind of argument from silence um, because you you don't, you that, well, it should be obvious. Uh, the apostles' gender, even when they're not named, the gender of the apostles is always indicated as male. The only exception could be Junia, who we've already talked about and as to why I don't think that that applies. Then there's 1 Corinthians 9, 5, which I think people ignore in this debate for whatever reason. Maybe I'm missing something, but I think we should pay attention to it. It says, do we have no right? This is Paul. He's talking about himself and the apostles. And look at this. Do we have no right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? So the other apostles, they took along their believing wife. Two things. This implies that the other apostles were all male. Two, the apostles' wives aren't called apostles. Right? The, the men are the apostles, the wives travel with the men. Not that they did nothing. Like I'd imagine these women were well-respected and that they have ministry roles to other people. I'm not suggesting they do nothing, but they're not called apostles. This seems to be, you know, a good, decent, you know, soft evidence against the idea of women apostles for those two reasons. Let me point out also a possible egalitarian contradiction. Um, the frequent reason given by egalitarians for why Jesus didn't appoint any women to be part of the 12 is again, because it won't be accepted culturally. Yet, many, many, many of the egalitarians think Junia was a prominent apostle before Paul was. Before Paul was. That's pretty early in the church, right? How does this work? Like if you're egalitarian, how do you reconcile these two these two ideas? If, if the reason why Jesus didn't appoint them as apostles is because it would look so bad, how did Junia become this well-known prominent apostle like right after Pentecost at the, at the latest, right? How did she become prominent? Like here's Peter, here's Matthew, here's Joseph, and even more known, more well-known and respected is Junia. And if it's not amongst them, then it's amongst some other secondary meaning of apostle that no longer matters for our debate. So my conclusions are the following. The New Testament gives us a high view of women right? Very high view of women. This, this should be acknowledged by anyone who wants to believe the Bible, right? Women are full co-heirs with Christ. They're able to do full-time ministry. They can do evangelism. They're able to be deacons, deaconesses, right? They're able to teach men. I'm going to talk about that in a second before I close the video here from last video. The last video, I got some pushback I want to respond to. Uh, they're able to teach men, even correcting their theology outside the role of elder. But we, so we shouldn't be paranoid or oversensitive about each interaction. We talked about Priscilla and Aquila there. Um, we'll have more evidence for that next time around. They owned businesses. They were likely an authority over male employees. 
but not as an elder. And none were apostles in that high sense. This seems to be a requirement that applies to us even today. Though cultural re reasons could be present, um, further study is going to make it more certain. When we add all the scripture together, I think it becomes incredibly clear that it all says soft complementarian to me. That's the conclusion on apostles. But last week, you um, you guys, or last week or last time I should say, you guys push back um, several times I saw in the comments the same kind of question over and over again. And that is in the idea that women could be deacons, which I do think women can be deacons. This, it's a view I did not hold before. I have changed my mind on this view um, from from earlier in my in my teaching ministry. Am I not? I don't think I don't think I talked about it online. I kind of abstained from the topic for a while because I I didn't know what to think about it for sure. This is one of those views that changed. And I said that deacons refers could uh, women could be in this role as well, whether you called them deacons or not. They seem to have that same type of ministry role, um, whether it has all the same responsibilities is unclear. But let's read the passage again, and I'll just point out to your guys' objection. Give your guys' objection and why, how I respond. So, uh, likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience, but let them also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons and be found, being found blameless. Likewise, their wives, and that could, the word there is italicized because it's not there. Um, it's just like, maybe it means that. It's the word gune, uh, gunekas, or I can't remember right now. And it, it just refers to um, women or wives. The same word can refer to both, right? So they must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. I said, hey, these are not just requirements for a wife. They're requirements for someone doing ministry. And I gave reasons for that in the previous video. And they're clearly it's clearly for women. And it's in relation to deacons. The pushback I got was verses 12 through 13 aren't about women. They're about men. Let deacons be the husbands of one wife. That's about men. I agree, this is not an interchangeable phrase. Husband of one wife doesn't refer to women. This is refers to men. There's other ways he could have said it, faithful in marriage, Paul could have said. Husband of one wife, verse 12 is about men. Ruling their children in their own houses well, for those who have served well as deacons, obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. I agree verses 12 and 13 are about men. I also agree verses 8 through 10 are about men. This is the part that people misunderstood a little bit, maybe because I miscommunicated. I don't know. Um, I do not think, this is what some egalitarians would say. Very few, I think, would say this, but some, no, maybe more than a few would, that this is gender neutral and that verses 12 and 13 are gender neutral. No, they're not. Husbands of one wife? No, that's not. Uh, this is this is all men all the way around. Verse 11 is about women. And these these ministry requirements for women parallel although they sometimes summarize with faithful in all things, it parallels the requirements for the men. The women are doing some ministry task. That's my point here. And verse 11 is about the women, not the other verses. You might call that deacon. You might not. Because Phoebe's called a deacon, not just a, a, one of the women who's serving with the deacons. She's called a deacon. I think it's okay to use that term. So that is that. I will mention too, I don't think I mentioned this before, Pliny, um, in a letter to Trajan, Pliny was a Roman governor writes a letter to Trajan. Trajan wants them to persecute the Christians and Pliny's reporting it on that. And this is in like about 110 AD. He actually reports that he's been torturing, uh, trying to get them to blaspheme these Christians. And two of the people he did this to were women who he calls deaconesses. Who he, he says that the church calls them deaconesses. This is a pretty strong evidence that again, in the very early church, women did have that role. All right, next week, we're going to get into the prophecy argument which basically goes like this. 
I say next week, hopefully next week, uh, not Monday though, maybe Wednesday or the following Monday. We'll get into the next video in this series. We will get into the prophecy argument. That is the idea that if a woman can prophesy, then how can you tell her she can't teach? And isn't prophecy kind of like teaching? I mean, isn't it prophecy is a type of a type of teaching? So you can't limit that. Um, gifts arguments. If women are gifted in the body of Christ, how are they not gifted in the same ways that men are? And there's more nuance and, and we'll, look, we'll dig into that. Also, the universal priesthood of believers. This is something I think a lot of complementarians forget, but I think a lot of egalitarians stretch it beyond its meaning. We'll talk about that as well. And other stuff, you'll get into it all next time around. Thank you guys for joining me. I hope that this has been helpful. And listen, I want you to know something. Um, uh, I expected for the from the beginning for this series to get initial video get a lot of views because of people's interest but for the videos after that to continue getting less and less and less and less views this is not as far as like youtube growth this is not smart of me that's not the point of this um the point of this is for those who like me hunger to hear the full argument and the full debate and you want to see the two sides and you want to challenge your views because you 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 don't want to be divisive about the issue but you want to stand strong and firm upon scripture this is for you for those who are like, you can't wait for the next in-depth analysis as you learn to process and think through these things, as you consider, agree, and sometimes disagree with me, and that's okay. Um, that's what this is for. We're learning to think biblically about everything. It's not about, uh, it's not about numbers of views. Anyway, that's about all I got to say, and I'll see you guys on uh, Friday this week for the Q&A at 1 p.m. Oh, this Friday, I'm going to do a Q&A for unbelievers announcement. Uh, I'd like uh, questions either from unbelievers or questions you're giving me that you've heard from non-Christians, right? Non-Christian questions. That's going to be this coming Friday. All right. Take care.